0: message on Deuteronomy as well. I guess that makes sense though, doesn't it? Uh, and so today we are beginning our, our messages titled Last Words because they deal with the last words of Moses to his people. The better we understand the, the law of God, the better we understand everything else that comes after this, right? If If we don't understand... The law of how Israel was supposed to act, we have no measuring stick to judge how well Israel held up to that when we're looking at the history of Israel. If we don't know the law, then we don't know what it is the prophets are calling the people back to when we look through Isaiah, Jeremiah, Malachi, Ezekiel, guys like that. If we don't understand the law, then we don't understand what Christ means when he says that he didn't come to abolish but to fulfill the law. Our understanding of the law helps us to understand the whole rest of the Bible. And so if you missed out on any of these, don't worry. You'll be able to find them all online. They will be online as well. We're going to continue on. We're going to finish up, though seeing in Deuteronomy the story of passing the baton. These are the final chapters of Deuteronomy. There's a new nation, Israel, and they are about to enter into the land. But they will enter into the land without Moses. And so Moses is taking these words to remind them, this time to remind them of, first of all, their history, He tells them of how God has always been faithful to them, how God has always been loving to them and and supportive and, and helping them. And he also shares how Israel had been unfaithful to him. Even in the very beginning, they were unfaithful to God, but God was faithful to them. Then we see Moses sharing about the law. He says, these are the commands that God has for you. You should follow the law and you should love the Lord your God who is giving you these laws because God is not giving you laws just to, to kill your joy, just to make you bored and boring. He is giving you these laws for your good. And then at the end, He tells us the stakes. He tells them the blessings that will come if they obey The curses that would come if they chose to walk away from God and the mercy that God would have if they turn back to him in repentance, even after the judgment has taken place. So now that whole speech is done, that whole section. And Moses is now saying farewell. And the time in the wilderness will end with the death of Moses. So Moses first says, I'm not going to be leading you anymore when you go into the land. Instead, there is going to be a new person that God himself has appointed to lead you into the land. And that person is Joshua, right? But, I mean, that kind of makes sense for us. If you are open in your Bibles to Deuteronomy and you turn a couple more pages past the end of Deuteronomy, what is the name of the very next book of the Bible? Anyone? Joshua. That's right. So this is the man who is going to be leading them in. But interestingly, as he is saying, Joshua is going to be leading you in. He doesn't point to Joshua and he doesn't tell Israel, look to Joshua and how great of a man he is. He points them to God. And he calls God by his name, Yahweh. He says, Yahweh will go before you. Yahweh has spoken that Joshua will lead. Yahweh is the one that will defeat your enemies. Yahweh is the one that will give them over to you. Yahweh is the one that goes with you. He goes before you. Yahweh will never leave you, and He will never forsake you. So with that in mind, pointing them not to how wonderful Joshua is going to be, but how wonderful God always has been and always will be, He gives these commands to Israel and to Joshua. To Israel, he says, first of all, be strong and courageous. And when you go into the land and you're fighting against these warlike nations with these huge tower walled cities that seem impossible to break into, don't fear them. God will defeat them. But when God hands them over to you, Do to them exactly what God says, because God has a reason for every command that He gives. And then He sandwiches the commands for Israel with actually a second set for Joshua. He tells them, Joshua, be strong and courageous and make Israel take the promised land. Lead them to do what God wants them to do. And then He comes back to Israel and He gives them another command, not for when they're taking the land, but for once they are in the land. And he says something that's, that's interesting, that's slightly unexpected after the commands of, of Israel going to war. He says, I want you, Israel, every seven years at the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles, to reread the entire law to all the people, man, woman, child, slave or free, Native or foreigner, everyone should hear the entire law at least once every seven years in its entirety. How often do we read through God's Word ourselves? Just reading through it and absorbing it by just working our way through it, not necessarily just a passage at a time, but trying to take an entire book and understanding it that way. Now, with all that said, all the commands of what God wants Israel to do, God knows and Moses knows exactly what's going to happen. God is under absolutely zero delusions about the future. And he tells them, he says, I know what you're going to do. I know that you are going to rebel. I know you're going to turn to other gods. I know you're going to misinterpret when I bring judgment on you for turning away from me. You're going to misinterpret my judgment as my failure to protect you. And that's going to make you rebel even more. That can kind of happen to us sometimes, can't it? It's all too easy for you and me to walk away from the God who we know. To walk away from the God who who has done so much, and we have seen Him at work in our own lives. We have seen Him, we know Him, and yet it is all too easy for us to turn away. And I believe that it comes down, at least it's summarized in Deuteronomy, in three different aspects, three different ways that we focus our attention. Every time that we turn our attention away from God, every time we turn our attention away from God, It is all too easy to lose our step. First cause of rebellion is when we focus on prosperity. Now, I didn't say prosperity is a cause of rebellion, right? Abraham was a very wealthy man, and yet he was faithful to God. So was Isaac, and so was Jacob, so was Joseph. There have been people who have been very wealthy, who have been very well off, who have been faithful to God. But it is a focus on things going right in your life that can cause you to stop caring about God sometimes, can't it? Isn't it true that when your life, at some of the hardest points of your life, when things have been the most difficult, those have been the times that you have relied on God the most strongly, and when you trusted in God, your relationship with Him was that much sweeter when He showed Himself to you? Is that not true? And yet, sometimes when things are actually going well, when we aren't hungry, when we're not worrying about how we're going to put food on the table or or pay the next bill, our ease can lead to self-reliance, can lead to say, you know what? Things are actually okay. Maybe I don't have to rely on God. Maybe it's okay to just start sitting just a little bit because God, after all, is blessing me because He's so pleased with me, so it's okay if I just do a little bit, right? A second way that we can do this is our focus on pain. This is the opposite. You would think that if focus on prosperity leads automatically to to disobeying God, then a focus on pain would automatically lead to that. And yet we also know in our own lives and in the lives of other people, that when we go through intense pain, it can be a time when God can show himself to you and be faithful to you. And you can say, wow, even in the middle of my struggles, God is so good and he is so faithful. And yet at the same time, that same pain could drive a wedge between us and God. Can't it? When we're going through a difficult time, difficulty with our children or our grandchildren or, or a difficulty at work or what have you, that you can say, God, where are you? And you can feel like He's not there. The focus on pain can sometimes lead us not to trust God more, but to believe that He maybe isn't all that powerful, all that loving, or all that faithful. And the third thing that can, that can cause us to rebel can be a focus on people. Now, this is interesting because the focus on people is not even here saying you're focusing on someone who is bad, who is trying to lead you away from God. Sometimes it can be a focus on the most godly, faithful man that you know that can lead you to rebel. Isn't that strange? God said to Moses, when you die, the people will turn away from me. Why would that be? Because the main reason that they were obeying was because Moses was there saying you had better follow God. You had better follow the law. He was there enforcing that and they grew dependent not on God but on the man. And when the man was taken away from them so was their relationship with God because it was based on another person and not on their individual relationship with God. Let me, give me a chance to beg you. Beg you. Don't let your relationship with God depend on me or any other person. If the only reason you go to church is because your spouse says, we should go to church, and you're like, oh, fine. You're depending on the person, not on God. If Your pastor, like, let's say you like me. There might be two or three of you in here. So I'm speaking to the two or three of you of whom that's true. Let's say that I'm here and at some point I am removed from this church. Maybe God calls me away to a different church or something else. But let's say I'm not the pastor here. I'm not going to be pastor forever. I mean, I'm going to live only so long, right? Let's say at some point I leave. Are you going to stop going to church? Are you going to stop your relationship with God because your pastor has left or because the, the, the music is different? Is your relationship dependent on the people or on God? All right, I spent way too long on that one. Let's keep going. God, in fact, I'm, it's interesting. I, I wasn't expect. I wasn't thinking about this as I was mentioning the music. But God even brings music into this. He says, Moses, people are going to turn away from you. So, what I want you to do is I want you to make a song for them to sing. And this song will be a witness to them even when they have turned away from you. Because isn't it true that, to be honest, <laughs> my message is that I speak to you Maybe they will help you to generally understand God's Word a little bit more, but who here can tell me any exact phrase I spoke a month ago? Probably none of you. You don't remember the words. How many of you, actually asking you to raise your hands for the second question, can remember a childhood ditty that you heard on the radio or on television? Anyone able to remember something from 30 years ago from the radio or from television? Anyone? Oh, come on. Phil, I know that you can. You can raise your hands. Al, come on. You know songs. Music sticks with you. Even if it's not a childhood ditty, how about a favorite hymn? If I were to sing, Amen. Perfect. Exactly. Even if you didn't sing it, you still knew it. Moses puts to them a song for a disobedient Israel in the future to tell them. In this song, he, the, it tells them of Yahweh's love for them at their beginning of the nation. It predicts their, fail, their faithlessness to God and their pursuit of other gods. It tells that, that God will judge them, and He will judge them harshly, and yet He will preserve them until eventually they begin to understand that there is no God but Yahweh. And when they do that, when they understand that and turn back to them, the end of the song says that God will make his people righteous. He will vindicate them and he will heal their land. This is the promise of the song, that even when they have turned away from God, the song will hopefully stay in the culture, calling them back continuously. Songs have a very big impact on our understanding of life. Pay attention to the songs that you listen to and the words in those songs. And then having done this, we come to the time of the death of Moses. Moses can't enter into the land with Israel because of his disobedience. And so God just shows him the land from atop a mountain. Now what was that disobedience again? Anyone remember what what exactly Moses did? Come on, someone's got to start sharing something. Yes? Yes. Yes. Once, way back in Exodus, the people wanted water. They came up to a rock and God said, take your staff and strike that rock. And he did and water came out. That was Moses obeying. Second time that they were thirsty later on, there was no water. And God said, go up to the rock and speak to the rock and tell the rock to give water and it'll give water. But Moses instead got so angry because they disobeyed so many times. He said, you want water? He took his staff and he hit it. And nothing happened. And he had another chance to stop and obey and speak. But instead, he got so angry as sometimes when when you get in a fit of anger, you you don't calm down just because you know you're wrong. He took that staff and he struck it a second time. And then the water came out. But it was in spite of Moses, not because of Moses. Now, you might look at that and say, but that sin isn't bad. How would that disqualify Moses? Moses. And here is where I get to speak to myself as well as to each of us who have our own spheres of influence where we are given authority over another person in our lives. A small failure in leadership can devastate those that God has given you charge over. That's where I speak to myself. This is something I have to tell myself again and again. Because a small failure in my life can devastate you. What happens if I let sin into my life and I don't take care of it, if I don't address it, what happens? I start to not preach about it. And if I see it in someone else's life, I just push it aside and say, oh, that's probably nothing, right? Sin in our lives affects other people. And for Moses, it was a small sin, seemingly but it hurt the nation of Israel. And so God calls Moses up and he dies. And let let me actually read these words to you the last chapter of Israel. If you have your Bible you can turn there as well. It's the final chapter just 12 verses long. Then Moses went up to Mount Nebo from the plains of Moab and climbed Pisgah peak, which is across from Jericho. I practiced those words. And Yahweh shoo, uh, showed him, not showed him, showed him the whole land, from Gilead as far as Dan, all the land of Naphtali, the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah, extending to the Mediterranean Sea, the Negev, the Jordan Valley, with Jericho, the city of palms, as far as Zoar. Then Yahweh said to Moses, This is the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob when I said, I'll give it to your descendants. I've now allowed you to see it with your own eyes, but you won't enter the land. So Moses, the servant of Yahweh, died there in the land of Moab, just as Yahweh had said. Yahweh buried him in a valley near Beth Peor in Moab. But to this day, no one knows the exact place. Moses was 120 years old when he died. Yet his eyesight was as clear and he was as strong as ever. The people of Israel mourned for Moses on the plains of Moab for 30 days until the customary period of mourning was over. Now Joshua, son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him. So the people of Israel obeyed him, doing just as Yahweh had commanded Moses. Last verses. There's never been another prophet in Israel like Moses, whom Yahweh knew face to face. Yahweh sent him to perform all the miraculous signs and wonders in the land of Egypt against Pharaoh, and all his servants and his entire land. With mighty power, Moses performed terrifying acts in the sight of all Israel. And so passes one of the greatest men of all the world, of all of history, one of the greatest Moses, for Israel, set the standard. God did great things through the man Moses. Through Moses, God saved them from the oppression of of Egypt. Through Moses, God redefined the way that Israel related to God. Through Moses, God gave the beginnings of our Bible itself. The beginnings of Scripture. And through Moses, God took Israel all the way up to the promised land. Moses was the only one to rule like a king, to speak like a prophet, and to sacrifice like a priest. No other king would be allowed to sacrifice. No other king, no priest would ever rule. No, the line of priests was through Le- the Levites, through Aaron. Aaron. The line of kings was through the tribe of Judah and through eventually David. Never the two would mix. There would not be a man like Moses again for over a thousand years. And yet also in Deuteronomy, we have the call to look for the day that God would send a prophet like Moses and to him they should listen. Can anyone tell me the man who would come one day? A man who would be like Moses, prophet, priest, and king. What is his name? Yes. Now let's see if the whole church can remember. What is his name? Jesus. One more time. Maybe like you, you, you care about the man. What is his name? Jesus. Ah, yes. Thank you. (laughs) Making you say words. Help you guys to wake up. (laughs) Jesus. Jesus is the one who would come that would not only be like Moses, but would surpass him completely. And so that's why, drum roll please, we are going to next week, starting next week, begin our series on Hebrews. Jesus above all. They would find in Jesus that He would save them, not just from Egypt, but from sin and death. Not just Israel, but the world. Jesus would redefine, like Moses did, the way that they relate to God. He would fulfill the law in Himself and He would allow people to have eternal life freely by His grace. You received life for the record, freely by grace beforehand, but it was because of Jesus' coming that a new way to relate to God would be introduced. And it would be Jesus that would offer not just Israel, but everyone, a rest far greater than that which Joshua would eventually lead the nation into. Hebrews is a book that was written to, well, Hebrews, uh, who were familiar with the law. References to Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy abound in this one book, which is exactly why we are going to be diving into this book as the next series. Because as we finish the law, there's no better time to see how Christ compares to and supersedes it all. But before we do that, let's see what we can take away from our time in this passage and in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 31, verses 10 through 13. I'll go ahead and pull that up right here. It says, And Moses commanded them, at the end of every seven years, at the set time in the year of release, at the feast of booths, When all Israel comes to appear before Yahweh, your God, at the place he will choose, you shall read this law before all Israel in their hearing. Assemble the people, men, women, little ones, the sojourner within your towns, that they may hear and learn to fear Yahweh, your God, and be careful to do all the words of this law, and that their children, who have not known it, may hear and learn to fear Yahweh, your God, as long as you live in the land that you're going over the Jordan." To possess. What I hope that we can take away from this. As we have seen so much of the way that God wants to relate to us in the way that God said he wanted to relate to Israel. We have seen His commands. We have seen His grace. We have seen His mercy. We have seen the blessings He wants to give us, the discipline for disobedience, the mercy to take us back every time we turn back to Him. We have seen the sacrifices that God provides so that we don't have to be judged for our sins. And most of us will look at all of these things and we will look at our own personal lives and say, "All right, in that case, if this is what... God wants for me, then I am responsible for me, right? I am responsible to listen. I am responsible to trust God. I am responsible to obey. And for most of us, especially here in America, you know, the land of the free, where where we kind of only don't tread on me. We decide that our responsibility only really extends as far as ourselves. But that is not what God says. My responsibility is for more than just my obedience. Each of us, each and every one of the people in this room, in this building, every believer, every Christian is given a responsibility from God to not just your belief, your love, your obedience, but to pass on that trust, love, and obedience to others, and especially to the next generation. Moses gave a warning to Israel. But that warning is for us as well, isn't it? I've heard it said, and I believe it's true, that every church is one generation away from extinction. Every church is one generation away from disappearing. So where does our responsibility lie? Jesus at one point was asked a question... Uh, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. And the second one is like to love your neighbor as yourself. And the man seeking to, to vindicate himself said, so to justify himself, he said, who is my neighbor? In other words, who am I responsible for? Who do I have to show love to exactly? And therefore, who do I not have to show love to? He was hoping that it's some circle of, of things. And, and Jesus points out the, the message of the Good Samaritan, doesn't he? Where he says, there's a man that had great need. He had been beaten up and everything stolen from him by robbers. He was left for dead. This a man with great need. And other countrymen saw his need and passed by and left him alone. And then another man, who absolutely is not from the same nation, who is actually, normally would be antagonistic to him, he saw his need and he saw that no one else was helping him and he said, this is my responsibility. So who are we responsible for? To share the love of Jesus With, to encourage them to love, trust, and obey God. Here's a good line. If no one closer to a person is drawing them to God, if there's a person and no one closer to them than you is drawing them to God, they are your responsibility. So, first of all, here's an example. Parents, parents, your children, before anyone else's responsibility, are your responsibility. It is not just enough to to send them to church and say, the Sunday school teachers will teach them about Jesus. If you trust in Jesus and you know Him, spend time with them in God's Word. Teach them about God's Word in your home. Parents, parents. Your responsibility first. Now let's say that you're someone that you're not a parent of, but, but you're still family. Let's say that you're an aunt, or an uncle, or a grandparent. If their parents are teaching them about Christ, then good on them. That's great. You still are invested in their lives, but they, their parents are taking care of their responsibility. But if you are an aunt, uncle, or grandparents, and the parents are not teaching them about Christ... They're your responsibility first. Right? It makes sense. Help them to know Christ to the extent that you can. Let's say that there's someone that you know who you are family friends with. You are close friends with their family. And there is someone and no one in the family is drawing them to Christ and you are one of the closest family friends that they know, you may be the only gospel, the only Bible that this person ever reads your life. Will you tell them, this family friend of yours, when their family is not? And by the way, there is a responsibility for every one of us to draw all people to God. Every single one of us has a responsibility to every other single one of us. I have a responsibility to you. You have a responsibility to me and to each other to encourage one another to be closer to God. Now, in case you're wondering, you're saying there is not nearly enough hours in the day and I have, I, I don't, I barely have enough energy for myself. It, you can't just say that you can turn around and give yourself to everyone fully 100%. Even with Jesus, what do we see in his example? Jesus ministered to thousands, right? He taught thousands and he, he probably healed hundreds. And he had about 120 people who were followers with him. About 120 people after his death and resurrection and ascension were gathered together in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 1 and 2. Remember? Remember? about 120 people who followed him. And of those 120, there were only 12 that he chose and said, I'm going to specially focus on you really helping to develop you into leaders. And even of those 12, there were only three that sometimes he would invite in up to the mountain to see the transfiguration or further into the garden before his arrest, Peter, James, and John. So Jesus, even he did not give himself as fully to every individual person. We give ourselves more to the people that we are closer to. If I, for instance, let's say I were to spend so much of my time ministering to the church that I neglected Tamara and my children, you know, and I I was looked like a great pastor and I preached really well, but I showed no love to Tamara or the children at home at the end of my life, do you think that I'd be able to look at my, my, my history, what I had done, and say, wow, I'm really proud of that? No, if I neglect my own family for the sake of the church, then I would say that I had failed. Wouldn't you? So we we are responsible we have the levels of responsibility that send us out of our comfort zone, but at the same time there's also that recognition of how much time and energy we give. And there's that balance, and I'm not going to tell you exactly what the, the calculation is or the how much you should do. I will allow the spirit to lead you in that. But please let the spirit of Christ and the love of Christ encourage you in this. For some of you, that's going to be leading you to step out of your comfort zone more, to maybe reach out to someone you never did. For some of you, you may be already overwhelmed and pushing yourself past the point of, of your, your limits, and you may actually need to scale back. Trust the Spirit. Follow the Spirit. Talk with other people who know you and know your relationship with God. And this God will not lead you wrong.